begin. The internet, a doorway to the world's most fascinating and terrifying communities. To explore it is to interrogate that which makes us human. Only some are brave enough to venture into these other worlds. Only some are brave enough to be called. The Internet Explorers. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Anderson Brothers, The Internet Explorers. I am your host. Hey. Hi, David. <laughs> I am your host, Evan Axel Anderson. And I am also your host, David Ryan Anderson. Sorry, I thought you were leaving me a room so I could say something. <laughs> well, either way, <laughs> welcome back. We have fun here on Anderson Brothers, the Internet Explorers. So last episode we did was about cryptocurrency. Yeah, it's been a tick. It's been a little while, but that's because we've been really digging down deep into this next. It's the most researched episode you'll ever watch. <laughs> So last episode, we talked about cryptocurrencies, crypto art, things like NFTs, non-fungible tokens, ways of taking something that is digital, like a JPEG or uh, an MP3 or a video or something like that, and making it so that it cannot be copied or duplicated. I guess it can be. It can be copied and duplicated. You're just not supposed to. <laughs> yeah, that's the elephant in the room, right? Is that really, in practicality, it doesn't mean quite as much. Uh, other than, you know, we've written your name on a piece of paper that we locked in a chest in the back room. And we just kind of say, oh, yeah, um, Gamer Guy 35 owns this piece of art. Basically, that is what impracticality is. Can you still take a, you can like still copy and paste images? <laughs> you can copy and paste an NFT. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter. A good metaphor I've heard is like uh, those star naming services. Yes. Where you pay somebody to be like, this is David Starr. Astronomers and whatever out there are not like C C four eight nine is now David Anderson Star or whatever. Like nobody cares. It's we like, found a potentially habitable expo planet out on David Star. <laughs> we'll call it David Prime. Right? Yeah. Like that. It doesn't matter if you're outside of the immediate community that actually cares that you bought the name, the naming right to that star or whatever. No, it doesn't matter. It's like, that's right. basically what NFTs are like. If you're outside that market that wants to pay and trade them or whatever, like then no, it doesn't matter. You really don't need to know all of this stuff to follow this new episode. But what uh, we do want to hit on for this episode is that one thing that disturbed us last time about cryptocurrencies and crypto assets like NFTs is that at their core, the idea, how do you give real world value to something like a digital piece of art that you can copy, you can replicate endlessly. Yeah, There's no limit on it. There's no scarcity to it. And the way that people are trying to do this is by basically just putting up restrictions, just saying, we're going to limit who can access this thing and arbitrarily imposing restrictions on something that does not need to be restricted. It feels to me, and I believe also to Evan, to be pointless and kind of frightening to say we're going to invent scarcity for something that didn't have scarcity. Yeah. You're going into the Star Trek future of a post-scarcity society and being like, but what if we had scarcity still? What would, the, what would that be like? What if we had that still? Yeah, like, you know how so many people are fighting over goods and, and limited resources. And <laughs> over water like and fuel and things like that. Right. The idea of, like, implementing that, imposing that into a digital world seems to me... You know, it's not as bad as like limiting water or food, but 
I mean, in a large way, you are limiting access to information and things like that. I think that's the end down the line, whether anybody is actively trying to or not. I think that is the end goal of this this whole process is just putting up more limitations um, on, on information and, and data and stuff like that. Hey, folks, this is David here. I know I was just talking a second ago. I just wanted to drop in real quick and let you know that, as you can tell, it probably sounds like I'm talking over the phone or something like that. It's because of uh, my mic screwed up and this is what I'm going to sound like for the rest of the episode. It's okay. It'll, it'll, it'll sound fine. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks other Evan. I'm also here just in case anybody was wondering. <laughs> All right. Let's, we're we're going to drop you right back into the episode. And I think the reason why this invention of scarcity kind of makes sense from like a psychological aspect is because we live in a finite world that actually has scarcity as a feature, right? Or I guess as a deficiency, however you want to think about it. So scarcity is just kind of part of our daily lives. And we've sort of been conditioned to run society with that assumption. Difference is that a digital world doesn't have that. You could make something new. You could make something that embraces the post-scarcityness of digital resources, but you know, that doesn't work with how markets work in our actual world. Yeah, the disruption that would be created by actually embracing a post-scarcity world or a world that's at least trying to reach it. Yeah. I think that disruption on, yeah, like our markets, the way that governments are built, that I think would kind of break them, to be honest. Yeah. And a lot of that is what we're actually going to be talking about today, because Evan and I were thinking, after going through our cryptocurrency Bitcoin episode, would it be great to find the people who were doing the opposite of that? Yes. People, the heroes, who, the crypto the, heroes. The heroes, yes. <laughs> the heroes who, instead of trying to impose scarcity and limitation on digital world that doesn't have that, they're trying to usher in a new era of human freedom, bringing the boundless nature of the internet to the physical world. What would it be like if you had these people who pursued this and we brought post-scarcity to the real world? What kinds of crazy new things could we just have all the time if we did that? <laughs> exactly. And anyway, that brings us to the topic of today's episode, 3D printed guns, open source weapons, and a little bit of ISIS, the Islamic State. <laughs> now, Evan, before we go into the musical interlude, I actually have a surprise for you. I have a what? secret surprise for you. I've been able to find uh, that within the 3D printed gun community, they make their own music, Evan. And oh so for gosh. the bumpers, I'm actually going to play for you a little bit of 3D printed it's gun 3D, music. It's 3D crypto music. I love it. 3D gun crypto music. Yeah. And believe me, this is more insane than you think it's going to be. This is nuts. The fact, I mean, I assume that somebody who is into this also makes music. And I love the fact that, is it like themed? Is it like supposed to be thematically tied to the program of 3D printed guns? Everything is not thematically tied. It is literally just... Do you want to know how to make a three? Here, just listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to bear arms. They want gun control. 
I want to bear arms, they want gun control. It starts with our guns, then our freedom. They want to control all the air that we breathe in. But with these 3D printers, we can defeat them. Send out these messages, hope you're receiving. Pledge our allegiance to truth, they can't handle it. Persecution, harassment is cancerous. Thought that they could have right, but this Lazarus flooding. The networks call us crypto anarchists. Judges are smiling from there on the bench. Want to take our only line of defense. One day your living room might be a trench. Answer the call, it's deterrence dispense. For less than 200, can get out the simulator. They will take all your rights and assimilate you. Shout out to Cody, the originator. Made the first printed gun that's a liberator. I want to bear arms, they want gun control. Unalienable freedom ain't supposed to come and go. You can ban the sales in this government puppet show, yeah. But I can print an arsenal right from my home. 3D Amendment, 3D Amendment, the Magdas Menendez, plastic inventions, my independence, my right to defend it. Come after my family and your life, I'll end it. David, you remember Schoolhouse Rock? <laughs> this feels like uh, this is this is like educational music, you know. I feel like as a kid, I grew up with Schoolhouse Rock, learn about Conjunction Junction, Mother Necessity, all these songs, and now I know how to make a gun. Yeah, I, what I love is th- so this song we just listened to is uh, the Signal by Ghost Boy. That's Ghost with a zero and Boy with an I. He's a rapper who raps about. Not just having 3D printed guns, but how to make a 3D printed gun. In the, <laughs> I'm sorry. We didn't play all of it for you. It's a longer song. Yeah, in the second verse of that song, the lyrics go, they want to take our guns whenever kids get shot. Instead of helping the sick, they say you're in their thoughts. Exercise your right, end up in prison blocks. That's why I'm telling you how to print a Glock. And then he goes on to explain the equipment and websites you have to go to to do it. Grab the Creality Ender 3, get an eSun PLA Plus piece, find the free men don't ask Glock 17 using GitHub, search FOSCAD, then please slice the STL, infill it 100%, make sure to use supports, then print. While you wait, order rails off Spooky Rails, Glock 17 parts kit through the mail, remove the supports when it's done, then see the readme, give a shout out on Keybase, it's too easy. Assemble when the parts arrive, it's all a blur, and don't forget the spring and a follower. <laughs> I can't get over this. I, I think we produce original educational material on this show, but we also sometimes just bring you stuff that's good. We just bring you other people's stuff that's good and educational. I have no joke. I have listened to this dude's entire library of music. It's on Spotify. Go go look this person up. I've been listening to it all week as I've been prepping for this episode. I have been so excited. <laughs> this is a good surprise, David. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. So in there, Ghost Boy references somebody named Cody Wilson created the first 3D printed gun called the Liberator. Yeah. And uh, this is a reference to back in May 6, 2013, a man named Cody Wilson released the plans for the Liberator online. This was a fully 3D printed gun, completely made out of plastic. It could take one bullet and fire. There were a few metal components, uh, springs and things like that. But for the most part, this is a 99.9% 3D printed gun that you could print out, assemble. It wasn't particularly effective. No. We'll, we'll say that. It, and, you know, it's like when you're when you're making uh, the first airplane, right? There's all those uh, abortive first attempts where people try to come up with ideas and it doesn't work, but it's all in service of getting the idea there. Like it's a proof of concept sort of thing. Yeah, the Liberator was famous for the fact that it could explode in your hand. <laughs> um, and Ghost Boy actually has a song called like Look Ma No Hands or something like that about how 3D printed guns don't explode in your hand anymore. But... <laughs> 
So, but the liberator, the point of it though, was like, like you said, it was like a proof of concept. It, it showed the world that, okay, maybe at this point we can't, we can't make a gun the way that we would like to be able to, but the only thing standing in our way is basically practice. Yeah. And like, I mean, I remember back in 2013 when this first happened and like uh, the joke was, okay, well, uh, it, it's like a Christmas story. Like, oh, you're going to shoot your eye out kid or whatever kind of thing. Yeah. It's going to explode in your hand. It's not even a good gun. Also, this is very dangerous, but also it's not even good. So like, why would you even want one? But I think there was like a fear about it, you know? For sure. I mean, it was, I think even though it wasn't necessarily good, the fact that you could do it was a threatening concept. So much so that like the State Department shut down the website that yeah. <laughs> that like hosted the files for it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it took like two days or something before before the government stepped in and uh, and tried to shut it down. I mean, it's still the plans if you want to make a liberator. They're out there. Yep. They're on torrenting sites and things like that, like Pirate Bay or whatever. But the concept at the at the core of this was that Cody Wilson and his team um, decided that they wanted to create like WikiLeaks for guns. Mm. So they coined the term of a Wiki weapon, which nobody really uses, but you would also think of it as an open source weapon. The idea that um, like open source programming, the code is out there. Anybody can take it. Anybody can use it, share it, make it, modify it, whatever they want to do. Okay, so this is interesting, again, for this idea that you're creating open source sort of things that you can produce at home with a 3D printer. How far has this come since then? Right, We're talking about these guns explode in your hand and don't work very well. That was almost a decade ago or coming close to a decade ago. Yeah, How far has it come? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah. No, yeah. It's like almost 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So fast forward to today, you can make a pretty much like military grade weapon, not necessarily entirely out of plastic. There's actually a lot of options if you want to 3D print a gun. One of the limitations of the Liberator was that it was entirely made out of plastic. That wasn't entirely feasible for making a durable weapon. Obviously, it exploded or it could explode. It wasn't feasible for making an accurate weapon. So when people talk about 3D printed guns, it's a little bit more complicated than just printing a plastic gun. Mm. Now, in some instances, actually, the technology has advanced to the point where you actually don't need very much beyond the plastic printed pieces to make a gun, depending on what type of gun it is and things like that. But more, more likely than not, what people are talking about with 3D printing a gun is that you are going to be printing a frame of the gun out of plastic. And you're usually gonna be using some kind of parts kit that you can buy online and then 3D printing the pieces of the firearm that the government regulates and requires serial numbers for. So the point of this is mostly to get around government uh, regulations and things like that. So one thing you're probably gonna end up buying are the lowers. These are, to put it simply, the metal components of the gun that connect to the magazine, the trigger, the grip. It's basically kind of the central component that the rest of the firearm connects to. These are, in in the United States at least, they're mostly sold without serial numbers. You don't need a firearm license. You don't need background checks because it really isn't a firearm. It's a block of metal that can be completed to be turned into a component of a firearm. Typically, you're going to be purchasing uh, an 80% lower which means that it is like 80% on its way to being a functioning firearm component. And um, you're going to require some kind of additional milling or something for that piece. And then you can print out all the rest of the pieces, put it all together, 
and you've got yourself a gun, usually. The biggest component is if you want to make your own gun barrels, you're probably going to have to use what's called the electrochemical machining process. This is when you take a metal pipe, a hollow pipe, and using 3D printed components that you make online, you can basically, to put it very simply, you construct this kind of apparatus, you put the entire thing with the metal pipe into a chemical bath, and it literally, if you watch the process, it looks like you just take jumper cables, shove it in the chemical bath, like in (laughs) a bucket or something, and it jumpstarts a chemical process, which actually will reshape the hollow barrel that you've put in, the hollow pipe, and it will reshape it into a gun barrel. It'll rifle it for you. It'll rifle it for you. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you can actually use it. It will be like very accurate. It's like a, in James Bond and all the James Bond movies, you always <laughs> see the spiral. It's like circle of the gun barrel. That's what yeah. the process will do for you. Yeah. I, I actually, I thought the uh, James Bond reference was going to be, and I realized actually it was a Mission Impossible reference where you've got the faces that reform. Not the faces, no. <laughs> Well, this is uh, this is nuts. So wait, uh, so outside of just the components for the plastic frame parts that you can produce, there are also methods that are sort of given and shared in these open source uh, sort of forums for how you can take these uncompleted, these eighty percent lower pieces, and actually bring them to one hundred percent completion and actually incorporate them into your weapon. Yeah, there are. Well, probably the, the famous one is the Ghost Gunner, which was also made by Cody Wilson, who made the Liberator. The Ghost Gunner is a, it's like a little microwave oven, uh, it looks like. Okay. But it is a uh, computer-controlled metal milling machine. So you can take your 80% lower, put it in there, basically flip a switch, it turns on, and this computerized device is inside of it. We'll just start going to work, just zipping around, mm. shaving away when it's be shaved away, making holes in the right spots, yada, yada. Bada bing, bada boom. You have a functional receiver. Not yeah. only that, but the Ghost Gunner is specifically designed to make receivers for the AR-15 mm. so that by the end, you have a rifle that is to military specification in a few hours. Yeah. Of course, you're going to need other parts to assemble together, but those other parts that you're going to need are, again, things that you can purchase online. They require no serial number, no background checks, no license, anything like that. So in an evening, you can get together with a bunch of friends, say, we're going to hang out tonight, and to wrap it up, we're going to finish off our rifles that we made ourselves that are ghost guns, It's you know, because they are completely untraceable. We're going over to Cody's, and we're having a gun party. You want to come? (laughs) Yeah, you could. Make an AR-15s. Yeah, and making your own gun is something that has always been possible. There are hobbyists and experts out there who know how to do this process on their own. The thing that the 3D printed gun community has brought is that people like you and I can do it now yeah. because we don't need to know that stuff. It's that open source aspect, right? It's the, yeah. it's the idea that you have people being able to contribute constantly to the concept, uh, refining it, and also the fact that it's just out there for anybody to do. And it, you, yeah, your entry point can be much more basic, right? You don't have to have this sort of specialized knowledge. Yeah, and at this point, I mean, you can 3D print the lowers at this point, depending on what kind of gun you're making. And that leads into, if you're trying to make a 3D printed replica of a gun that exists, usually that's a little bit more difficult. But what has been happening is that there are people out there who are like, well, let's invent a new gun that can lean into the 3D printed process that leans into the materials and functions. it's designed to function out of these materials. 
it doesn't need to be metal or the metal components that you will need are very minimal. Yeah. So you can have um, a Glock that is, again, like 99% completely printed. You don't know how to do the milling. You don't have to buy the ghost gunner machine to do it for you. But it's, but for like branding reasons, they have to change the name slightly. It's a glue. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of times the, the names are changed um, because yeah. they are technically different designs. Right. So that will lead me into next to Cody Wilson. You've got the other godfather of the 3D printed gun is a man who goes by the name J Stark 1809 or usually just J Stark. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Trey Stark died earlier last month. We're going to talk about that in a little more detail later. Yeah. Yeah. Early, early in October. So he's believed to be Ukrainian. He's the inventor of the FGC nine, which stands for <laughs> gun control nine millimeter. We have to put like a, a, I'll put a little bleep over that. A little, we'll put a little bleep parental <laughs> advisory at the, at the start of the episode. I know, this is a family <laughs> show. So the FGC nine is a semi-automatic carbine designed to be built in countries with even the most restrictive gun control laws. Like I said, he's operating out of Eastern Europe. That's really what his focus is on. And he is one of the prominent members of the 3D printed gun community called Deterrence Dispensed. What And what is that? Deterrence Dispensed is named basically for the idea that if everybody is armed, if everybody has a gun, that is deterrence for governments or any any kind of extremist group who's going to come in and try to abuse you. So if a gun is deterrence from authoritarianism mm. and their goal is to dispense deterrence to everybody, their goal is to have rifles and automatic rifles, whatever, pistols, things in the hands of everybody in the world. So when we talk about the community of 3D printed gun folks, we're not talking about like a hobbyist community per se. I mean, it is that, but there is also this sort of ideological component that is sort of pregnant throughout the entire community. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I don't think I've referenced this yet, but when I, we were talking earlier about the fact that this is the most thoroughly researched episode we've done, I don't know if that's actually true, but what is true is <laughs> it's that- It's most certainly not. <laughs> what What is true though- is that I first wanted to do this this episode over a year ago when I first became aware of them, the grassroots journalism outlet Popular Front did a very short documentary about Jay Stark, which came out after I had already kind of embroiled myself in the 3D printing gun community, not as an active participant, but as a, an observer but I, because I, I was interested, I was like, how easy is it to make one of these things? And I decided I'm going to go as far as actually printing one of these things. I'm going to go to the websites. I'm going to download the files. I'm going to see how they work. Um, so the best, David doesn't have a 3D printer. I don't have actually one. do any of it. Yeah. No, but I do know people who do. And I, I've definitely been tempted to get them to let me print a gun with them. I for sure know who you're talking about. I, <laughs> <laughs> I like 100% know who the person you're thinking of right now. Uh, I never went through with it, and I, I was also very tempted to buy my own 3D printer just to test this out, not because I yeah. uh, not because I was like part of the ideological movement behind this, but because I thought it was worth a try to see how easy is this to do. As far as I can tell, very easy yeah. for somebody like me. At this point, you can, you can walk into this thing and within probably a few days, figure out how to pull this off, wow. um, especially because the community is very supportive. That's part of the open source uh, ideology that everybody's here to support one another and help us like learn and, and figure this all out. 
So a big thing in the uh, 3D printed gun community, people like like within deterrence dispensed, is something called crypto anarchism, which again you may have you may have caught in the Ghost Boy song that we listened to. He mentions that they are crypto anarchists. What the heck is crypto anarchism, Evan? Yeah. So what is crypto anarchism? Kind of in a folk etymology kind of way, we can look at it and say. Of course, anarchism, we know what that is, is sort of rejection of centralized authority in a community. The idea that everybody can and has the ability to or the faculties to run their own affairs. And there is also this crypto aspect, which we could sort of say maybe there's some connection to cryptocurrencies. But generally, it's this idea that something is hidden, right? It's clandestine. Uh, it is not something you can just sort of find in a specific location. It's in a digital location. Um, so you can shut down a website, but there are other websites to host this material. You can't stop the signal. Hashtag can't stop the signal. That is one of their big hashtags that they use. If you're interested in this community at all, feel free to go on Twitter or Instagram and type in hashtag can't stop the signal. We're not we're not suggesting you should join this community for for sure. David has definitely been sending some vibes of like, yes, I've basically made a gun at one point and I'm super <laughs> I want you all to go bake your own guns, please. No, anybody new to the movement is going to be able to find this information if they look for it hard enough. Yeah, and I will tell you, you do not have to look very hard. (laughs) I came across this community by accident because they want to be, the community wants to be found. Individual members may not want to be found and they may want to preserve their anonymity, which is something that the crypto anarchist movement in general really values is the sense of privacy. Yes, that authorities cannot control you. They they can't tell you what to do. In in this case, the way it's manifesting in the three D printed gun community, or really just the printed gun community, probably a more accurate way of referring to them, is the government can't tell you you can't have the weapons that you want. They can't tell you that you can't make military grade weapons. And it's almost like a technological tit for tat, right? It's it's a it's an uh, an arms race, I guess, in a literal sense. Um, between, in, you know, private citizens and states or powerful businesses and things like that, where you can say, ah, you have the technology to monitor people or to restrict uh, access using new technologies. Well, what if we utilize new technologies to redeploy that kind of stuff to a broad audience, right? You know, if we're talking about like 18th century America or something like that, uh, there's no way that, you know, a state official could like prevent you from making basically a musket. Um, they aren't particularly complex mechanisms for that sort of thing. Now we're looking at some kind of technological um, sort of counter to, oh, yes, we need serial numbers, and these are very advanced weapons systems that you actually need machined and things like this. It's, you know, in the ideology of crypto anarchists and the folks who produce these 3D printed weapons, it is getting back to like Western ethics uh, in this oh, way, totally. it is this evaluation of technology as inherently good, right? It can be used for bad things like, you know, oppressing people, but here is a deployment of technology to make right that, you know, misusage of technology as a good thing, a fundamentally good thing. Yeah. And that's something that Cody Wilson, I'm going to keep referencing him a lot because he's very vocal on all yeah. of these, these topics. Cody Wilson himself said stuff like that, where he's like, what were the founding fathers intending with like the second amendment? The spirit of the second amendment is that you should always be able to resist tyranny. A revolutionary imperative exists 
in us as citizens. And as technology develops, what that looks like is going to develop. And it's going to become more and more extreme because we are going to have access to more and more extreme weaponry, more extreme arms. I mean, you know, what if you got like a 3D printed bazooka? Is that something that's coming next? You know, who knows? Right. Yeah. And so his goal is, uh, he says, um, Cody, Cody Wilson wrote a book where he kind of outlines all this stuff. And a quote from it, he says, the printed pistol lays bare Western ethical ideology. And he explains that what he means by that is this idea that technological progress is inherently valuable and good, uh, is what he believes, but that we, uh, sort of a liberal um, mindset, has removed politics from progress. You know, you have this idea of progress. It's kind of a feel-good thing, which we've kind of talked about on the podcast before, um, especially in our artificial intelligence episode, this idea that, like, oh, sure, like, progress is good. I mean, why is it good exactly? How is it working? That's kind of vague, and a lot of people probably don't know how they would answer that question. If you abstract progress into literally a word and some scare quotes, I mean, you can, everybody can get on board with it. But when you start to get into the nitty gritty of what progress looks like on the ground, you have to start grappling with the political socio realities of what you think progress is and like, yeah, the, and the, the effects it has on people's lives, the way it can alter people's lives or hurt them. Yeah. And the moment that you can download and print a gun that is effectively no different than a gun that you would go out and buy. It's, it's an inherently political thing you're doing by making a gun yourself. Yes. So it, it puts all of us in a weird position of saying, okay, well, what do we mean when we say progress? Is this progress? I mean, for a lot of people, the answer is like, undoubtedly, yes. I think in, in many ways it would be considered progress. In other ways, it's like you're, you're making it easier than ever to do damage to a person. Now, arguably, states, governments, corporations are also making it easier than ever to do damage to people. So is this only leveling the playing field? But it's an inherently political question you're forced to ask. The fact that printing that stupid little liberator gun that might blow up in your hand when you use it kind of exploded this conversation. I think a lot of people aren't talking about the 3D printed gun. And yeah, I did not mean for that to be a joke, but thank you, Evan, for laughing. I'm like laughing over here. It literally exploded. I didn't mean for that to be funny, but it was funny. Thanks. So it also raises the question that a lot for a lot of crypto anarchists is also really important, which is if I have the power to make an AR-15 in my dining room one night, what power does the government have or a court system have in regulating firearms at that? Like, what is the point? of a court at that point to tell me I can't do that. And to a certain extent, the larger question of when you start to be able to print other things, I mean, we joked about the idea of like printing a house or printing a car. Those are things you can actually print. At what point is any of that uh, ability for government to regulate any kinds of products you produce with your own printer possible anymore? I mean, that's a larger question, but I mean, that is, you know, not slippery slope, but if you take this idea further, that's where you're going. Yeah, and that is ultimately the end goal. Uh, like I said, that is the end goal of crypto anarchism in general. Is this idea that if you can create this level playing field, then you're not going to overthrow governments or or you know corporation, whatever whatever the authoritarian sort of organization is that has power over your life. You don't have to overthrow them by violence. 
you can overthrow them just by making them irrelevant. Yeah. So let's get into a bit more about the history of the crypto anarchist movement, um, because they're very interesting to me. Originally, Evan and I were considering talking about these guys in the cryptocurrency episode last episode. We ended up saving it for this episode just because it seems a little more immediately relevant here. But let's go back to one of the founders of the crypto anarchists, a man named Tim May, who was uh, originally operating in the 80s. He was inspired by Ayn Rand, who was famously the creator of the philosophical, political ideology called objectivism. Uh, no. I didn't know if you were going to say something or not. <laughs> I'm just making, I'm making disapproving sounds. <laughs> Ayn Rand in practice is actually something called an anarcho-capitalist, which more commonly we would just think of them as they're, they're a type of libertarian Yeah, where they believe that you know, we don't want government to tell us what to do. We want the marketplace to determine how we live our lives, which I personally think has a lot of inherent problems we'll get into. So Tim May came on the scene in the 80s. He really liked Ayn Rand's anarcho-capitalist ideas but believe they weren't really attainable without this new emerging technology that we now today know as the internet and all of its various things it's brought with it, all of its, all of its damnable components. But <laughs> Tim May was not a fan of the name anarcho-capitalist, just like Ayn Rand wasn't a fan of that name either. It sounds scary. Yeah, it's <laughs> from wherever you are on the political spectrum, there's something in the name that yeah. you're not going to like. <laughs> So Tim May came up with the name Crypto Anarchist to describe his new group that was developing. And the goal, again, is a stateless society, or at least a society where states, uh, governments are developed online, basically. They are broad networks that you can kind of opt into the way you would opt into using Facebook, for example. Yeah. The Facebook nation. (laughs) Yes. That's not like the best example, but it's like a good way of thinking about it. So you could create a world of digital nations or bit nations, as uh, the name is also proposed. And the goal would be to create a sharing economy, kind of like a lot of people today who are crypto anarchists talk about using Uber or Lyft as kind of a model for how society could be run. What? So if you imagine like, oh, they realize Uber isn't actually decentralized. It's a company. Yeah, no, it's a very, here's here's my problem with a lot of these. Um, a company, uh, like a business, unless it's like, I guess, unless it's like a commune, like unless it's like a commune, it can't be anarchist. Yeah, well, the goal, I, I, the goal is that with Uber or Airbnb or whatever, you have, you have something you own, you have your car, you have your home. You know, other people can pay you to use that service. Why not? It belongs to you. You can like rent it out, so to speak. And what a society in general operated more like that is the argument that we can all just kind of volunteer our services to one another, yada, yada. When, when you get to a certain degree of like libertarianism or anar- I mean, it, or anarchism, of course, it, it resembles something sound that sounds a little bit more like just good old fashioned college communism, kind of. So I don't know Russian, so I can't actually sing the Soviet <laughs> national anthem, but I was about to. <laughs> but the thing is, that, like like you're saying, Uber does not actually work that way. Uber is yeah. great for the company. It's, it's great for, for Uber, the company itself. And it's good for the consumer. For the most part, it's good for the consumer. <laughs> it's what if you what if you what if you had all the stuff you owned and you volunteered it to be exploited by a company? Right. It's terrible for the person who is actually doing the sharing. Yeah. 
the person in the middle who's using their vehicle or, or their skills or whatever, that person is getting exploited. In a way, it's the perfect description of an anarcho-capitalist society because that's what anarcho-capitalism is. The, the AMCAP model yeah. is basically, what if there were no regulations in place to stop me from exploiting other people to make money? What if it was basically the society we live in now, but like also we just take the brakes off entirely? <laughs> No, and and here's the thing. It's like when you start to append the terminology of like anarchist or uh, there's this uh, term that you could also use for this group, which is like cypherpunks, which again, uh, being a punk is being countercultural. It is being sort of against the man and these sort of control systems. There is something liberating in in the concept, right? But I think when you start to see, you know, rubber hit the road and how do you actually implement this kind of stuff, you constantly see just reifications of like basically liberalism, but worse. (laughs) Well, this episode has been really challenging for me to put together, Evan, because in part, when I read stuff that the crypto anarchists are talking about, I feel I agree with. It's very appealing. I agree with it for the most part. Yeah. And not in a way where I'm like, ah, this means I shouldn't agree with it. I think a lot of what they're saying is true. This is kind of the thing we were talking about last week with the cryptocurrency stuff is a lot of the problems that they're trying to solve with it, I think are true. I think those are good things to try to, to try to tackle. I think the methods that are being used are not as good. Yeah. So I'm going to read for you uh, some bits here from the crypto anarchist manifesto Ah, from the horse's mouth. That Tim May wrote in 1988. These are just a few uh, quotes I've taken out that I think are relevant. He says, a specter is haunting the modern world. No. The specter of crypto anarchy. How dare he? (laughs) (laughs) Is his manifesto like in Scarecrow? Well, (laughs) it's a tongue in cheek. This is the communist manifesto, but yeah, it's tongue in cheek. No, that's literally literally what it is. Tim Tim May was trying to uh, to evoke the communist manifesto. Okay. Computer technology is on the verge of providing the ability for individuals and groups to communicate and interact with each other in a totally anonymous manner. These developments will alter completely the nature of government regulation, the ability to tax and control economic interaction, the ability to keep information secret, and will even alter the nature of trust and reputation. This is kind of what we were talking about, this idea that like- yeah. If you can make a 3D printed gun, what is the role of a lot of government institutions that try to limit that? Or even yeah. like corporations that say, no, we want you to purchase our guns. Like the NRA hates these guys. Because it, it, they ultimately represent like the lobby of gun manufacturing businesses. Right. So it's a more traditional way of doing it. Yeah. So it's like a weird intersect with me where I'm like, yeah, well, screw to all those guys. You know what I mean? Like, I don't care. Like, yeah, if they're upset, then good. Like, <laughs> Screw to the all those guys. I don't know how I phrased it, but yeah, it came out, it was pure. It was pure from the heart. <laughs> no, and again, that I I I think that there is a very true observation of fact going on here, right? Like the fact the internet and the innovations that's bringing to how society works. I mean, this is the uh, this is the conceit of our entire show, right? Is that the internet is fundamentally changing how society operates, that there is a recognition that that's happening. And there is some desire on the part of, you know, Tim May, crypto, uh, I was about to say crypto fascists. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
there's this, so this anarchist. yeah there's this desire on the part of folks like tim may and crypto anarchists to identify what does the next step in human civilization look like i mean that sounds heady but like that's what a lot of this stuff is yeah it's trying to understand okay well now how do we relate to each other when materiality is being transcended in like this really interesting way so he says next the technology for this revolution and surely it will be both a social and economic revolution has existed in theory for the past decade I'm talking about the the developing internet, uh, what would soon become the World Wide Web. The state will, of course, try to slow or halt the spread of this technology, citing national security concerns. Use of the technology by drug dealers and tax evaders and fears of social disintegration. Now, that describes not only 3D printed guns, that also describes what's going on with cryptocurrency. It's like uh, which we talked about last uh, last week, last episode. It also is a pretty, like it uses here as like, mm, and these are the reasons why they'll pretend it's bad. I'm like, well, this is these are actual reasons why the internet's bad for us. <laughs> yeah, well, and then in the very next sentence, he says, many of these concerns will be valid. Yeah. Crypto anarchy will allow national secrets to be traded freely and will allow illicit and stolen material to be traded. An anonymous computerized market will even make possible abhorrent markets for assassination and extortion. Various criminal and foreign elements will be active users of crypto net, but this will not halt the spread of crypto anarchy. Hmm. So he says, he's like, yo, terrible things are going to happen as a result of this. This this developing internet, that thing that's happening will lead to some like awful stuff. And if you talk to people within the printed gun community about like, aren't you concerned that anybody can make a weapon? What if it falls in the wrong hands? Basically, the reaction is like, yeah, that's going to happen. It's kind of accelerationist, right? Like in a more traditional, like anarchist, revolutionary kind of thinking, there's this idea of the more bad stuff and contradictions that occur in society, the more likely and the more quickly revolution will happen. I mean, that's kind of the sense here, right? It's like, yeah, this bad stuff will happen, but ultimately it's on the march towards better things. Yeah, I mean, even uh, Jay Stark, the Ukrainian man who developed the uh, FGC-9, he has said even if a lot of bloodletting would be necessary to keep the right to keep, to carry firearms, I would do it. I mean, that's and that's a very sort of, you know, what um, the the tree of liberty must be watered with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Yeah, you know, this kind of concept is very old, right? This idea that violence is a necessary aspect of revolutionary change, right? In, in and of itself, yeah. violence as a phenomenon is just a statement of some kind of upsetting or shaking uh, change to something. Yeah, exactly. And that brings us to, in the three printed gun community, what exactly is their political ideology over there? Because it turns out that's a very difficult question to answer in some ways. Yeah. In some ways, it's very easy to answer. One of the things that makes it hard to discuss is that the belief that it's a right to bear arms crosses ideological lines. Um, in, in the United yeah. States, we tend to think of Second Amendment people as hardline right-wingers, which I think in general, they I think they probably are. I think there's a culture around it that, that, yeah. that exists in, on the right wing, for sure. But to limit it to say it's only a right-wing value, I think is very mistaken. The further left you go on the spectrum, it definitely comes back around to pro-gun people for sure. Yeah, I think more uh, centrist liberals are very anti-gun. I think I think centrist is where you're going to find the most resistance and pushback to stuff like this. 
but it really this crosses ideological lines pretty drastically. Yeah, I think uh, the place outside of just like right wing circles that I see the most like memes about having guns or needing guns is definitely on like the more sort of anarchist and revolutionary communist kind of like circles on the left. Yeah. So a common refrain you hear in the printed gun community is that they only stand for two things. One, freedom of speech. Two, right to bear arms. For those of us in the United States, those are our first two amendments. Yeah. And those are the only things they care about. Anything you believe in beyond those two points, they don't care. They don't want to know. That is all on you. Yeah. As long as you don't infringe on those two points, then there's room for you in the printed gun community. That's what Ghost Boy calls the 3D, right? Uh, the 3D amendment. The 3D <laughs> amendment. There we go. <laughs> now, some people, including me, will hear that and be like, okay, but let's be honest. I mean, a lot of people say stuff like that, especially yeah. like weird fringe groups, extremist groups weird like ethno-nationalists or stuff like that. And in part, part of the reason why it's taken us so long to make this episode, aside from the fact that we are just very slow, is that I really wanted to like wait for them to drop the mask, you know, to drop the facade and reveal what's really going on. And where I've ended up is I don't think there is one. Yeah, the question kind of lingering was, is this desire to reduce it down to two principles, not necessarily an inclusion thing, as much as it is like a uh, a plausible deniability thing, like, hey, we only care about this stuff if you're, you know, a white nationalist or anti-government anarchist terrorist kind of individual, uh, we don't subscribe to, we don't, you know, we don't want that, those kind of people in our group. Yeah, it gives, you, it gives you plausible deniability or something like that. Yeah. Now, usually the figureheads, they'll say like, I mean, Jay Stark himself puts it most bluntly when he, he says, we hate racists and we hate xenophobes. Any, any people who come around who are going to try to tell you what to do, they have no place in the community. And the moment they can be identified, they are kicked out. Yeah, but is Jay, is Jay Stark the king of the anarchists? Like, does he no. represent everybody? <laughs> like, I, I think this is an inherent issue with anarchist groups is because, like, who gets to say what the specific, like, who gets to speak on behalf of everybody, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and these guys will tell you they don't speak on behalf of everybody. Yeah. And that they don't want to speak on behalf of everybody, in part because who knows who everybody includes. Yeah. Yeah. If somebody outs themselves as being like a white nationalist or something, yeah, okay, they'll be like, well, get out of here. You like, we don't want you here. Right. But if somebody is a white nationalist and they don't out themselves, like they just have like the smallest amount of self-control to not bring it up, they're still they still have access to this stuff. It's kind of it's very ass don't tell, right? Or don't <laughs> ask, don't tell. <laughs> It's very don't ask, don't tell, right? It's just like, if right. you don't bring it up, if nobody brings it up, then it's not an issue. Yeah, like if some guy from like Boko Haram or something is out here, you, you don't know. Because yeah. again, part of the crypto aspect of this is that if you want to be anonymous, if you want to be hidden, you can be hidden. But as far as I can tell from my year or so among these people, it definitely- It's not like an anthropologist. I, know, I went and spent a year living among the- <laughs> The 3D printed tribe. The 3D printers in the mist. Of uh, Kiev. So they mostly seem to be, of course, libertarians, um, a lot of prepper types. I mean, everybody's like anti-government for the most part. Sure. Uh, Anarchists. From what we know, there are some militia groups, um, Mm. terrorist groups, perhaps, but also like 
engineers, designers, hobbyists, people who just think it would be cool to learn how to do this. Like the mechanics of making a firearm is like cool to know, you know, just on its own. Podcasters doing research. People like, yes, people like me. <laughs> There's a lot of people out there who make these things and never fire them. They just think it's like, like, oh, check it out. I made, it's like saying I made a blender or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. A, a murder blender. <laughs> yeah. Just don't stick your hand in it. But one of the common threads I would say is that these people tend to be outcasts from more traditional communities. Like yeah. we said, the NRA hates these guys. Maker communities, like people who, you know, for example, like, oh, look, I'm going to 3D print like a cool little device or like a blender or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like here's something innocuous that you can learn how to make yourself. I guess a more mainstream hobbyist kind of communities. Yeah. Here's how you can 3D print miniatures for a game or something yeah. like that. Here's how you can print like a little robot or whatever it is. Those people hate 3D printed gun people because they, they see it as like a complete misuse uh, and perversion of their hobby. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think there's any establishment political party that has come out being like, yeah, we're all for the 3D printed gun in part, because I think, again, going back to the lobbyist angle, yeah, I think, I think 3D printed guns are also bad for business, even gun business. Especially like political parties in the United States. Like if, if you're like anti-establishment, anti the entity that ostensibly these parties are supposed to be like operating right. within, like they're not going to be like, you know what? Yeah. You guys got a good point. But by and large, Second Amendment advocacy is still much more the wheelhouse of the right than the left, I think. And a lot of the most prominent voices seem to be on the right uh, within the printed gun community. There's a guy named Control Pew, which is a reference to Control C, Control P, copy paste. Yeah. Control Pew, they're a huge figure in the printed gun community. They are uh, self-described constitutional absolutist who believes civilians should have access to everything that the military has access to, whether it's an AR-15 or an aircraft carrier. An aircraft carrier in every home. (laughs) Well, I mean, like, it's something like we would laugh about, but it's like, yeah, like if the government has it, then why shouldn't I be allowed to have it? And, and and I realize again, this is a critique that we constantly come back to, but access is a really important word in this sort of little discussion here because it is yeah. basically saying, well, if you have the money to afford, if you have <laughs> millions of dollars, you can <laughs> afford it. Or not even billions of dollars. Like these are machines and like technologies that like an individual probably doesn't have enough money to buy. Like if you're Elon Musk or like Bezos or something like that, maybe you have the money <laughs> to buy something like this. Yeah. You've got guys, Cody Wilson. These days, I don't know if he even uses the crypto anarchist label anymore. I think he just says libertarian at yeah. this point. There's an organization called Open Source Defense. They're, they're very involved in the 3D printed guns. Yeah. Is, I'll leave it at that. Their members are made up of a contributing writer for Quillette, which is <gasps> a white, white nationalist uh, online publication. <laughs> yeah. Um, he himself, as far as I can tell, has never written anything white nationalist flavored but like still like don't associate yourself with these people that's a that's a red flag to me yeah so these people tend to be on the right the more figureheads of the community but also the community has seen a huge uptick since coronavirus started because firearm sales in general have gone up since coronavirus started Hmm. do we have any analysis on why that might uh, just out even outside of uh, 3d print is it just like prepper kind of feeling kind of sense of collapse or something yeah, basically. Okay. I Basically, I, I think it's a lack of security. Yeah. No, for sure. As systems are failing, there's more of a sense of, well, I've got to 
figure out how to watch out for my situation immediately around me. Yeah. Uh, concern of, of danger or whatever that, that just kind of is like how that typically trends. Yeah. So, um, between seven and 15% of gun owners today. So if you just walk around right now in the United States, as many as 15% of them never owned a gun before 2020, Mm. it was specifically in the pandemic that they first bought a gun. And the fastest growing segments were not white men, which is what you would probably assume. It was women and black people who are mostly becoming new gun owners. Mm. So again, this idea that guns are one specific thing that's very easy to, to understand that gun ownership is one specific thing is it's kind of breaks barriers more than we would think, especially today. Actually, there is a Ghost Boy song where he specifically talks about how since the coronavirus began that more people are getting into 3D printed guns also. I have to admit, I don't know where Ghost Boy is getting his numbers from. I was going to say Ghost Boy is, uh, <laughs> is, a, is a news source. Well, Ghost Boy, he's pretty good at just parroting what, like, what, just what's going on out there. You know what I mean? He's zeitgeisty. He's, yeah, the zeitgeist. Uh, <laughs> but it's gaining the attention of like the Biden administration. He's tried to ban the spread of 3D printed gun files online. Yeah. Which personally is impossible, <laughs> is my opinion. I was going to say, yeah, person, David's personal opinion, not for David, is impossible. <laughs> you can't my stop pers- me. You can't stop David's signal. My, my take Hashtag on this. Can't is, stop David's signal. Can't stop David. No, you cannot. You can't stop the proliferation of these files online. Yeah. It is doomed to fail if you try. It is either doomed to fail or if you want to be really effective at it, I think it's going to require an amount of state control. Yeah, an an amount of control that will damage the spread of information in general. Yeah. Yeah, you have to like unplug huge sections of the Internet. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a foolish endeavor to pursue. Yeah. So aside from just trying to do that, they've also been talking about trying to ban the ghost gunner Mm. and restrict the sales of these 80% lowers that we were talking about. Sure. Or in every state, they're not unregulated. In some states, they are regulated, um, like California. So just trying to like make that more of a federal regulation, trying to implement that. Right. But again, it is... It's a finger in the dam. It's not, I mean, I will say it sincerely. I don't think you can stop the signal. Yeah, again, it is. And we get, this gets us back to the point of Timay's argument is just a description of what reality is becoming. It's not, it's not like aspiration. I mean, it's aspirational in the sense of like, this is something we should embrace and maybe here's a program. I don't know how deep the manifesto gets, but this concept of, here is what the state of things is, and this is how I imagine things are going to go in terms of how integrated and clandestine the internet is going to be in making the way at least we do human governance and civilization obsolete. Yeah. I just think that's an accurate reflection of what the situation is. So how much conflict, I mean, like illegal firearms trade is a thing, or just like, uh, you know, I watched... Um, not Magic Man, geez. Uh, what's the the movie with <laughs> Marcos? Oh, no. Magic Man. Oh no, you're talking about uh, Lord of War. Lord of War. <laughs> I don't know why the Magic Man. So we've got this trend of governments being concerned about the sale of the, or not even the sale, right? The production of these kinds of weapons using these methods. Uh, I've watched Lord of War. I know that there's like illegal firearms uh, sales going on around the world. 
how how much of this is supplanting or adding to weapons in like foreign conflicts like in like conflicts around the, the world yeah i have fallen in love with popular front the the conflict oriented news outlet they have been following among many other things how 3d printed guns have been showing up around the world in actual conflicts you have the the fgc9 has been seen used in Myanmar by rebel forces fighting mm. against their government. Yeah. In Finland, it's being traded on the black market, which I don't know exactly why if the if gun regulation is such that 3D printed guns are just like a better alternative. I mean, they're, they're ghost guns. Yeah. They are they're unregulated, untraceable. Right. And even 3D printed bombs being used by Russian backed separatists in Ukraine. Called it. I said bazookas, but basically same thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and that is going to be our segue into our next point, which is that we've been mostly talking about 3D printed guns yeah, and a little bit about like, you know, the milling machines and things like that. But that is only the tip of the iceberg, because what we're really talking about here is an entire universe of open source weapons. Yeah. So generally, the concept of open source is that it is a kind of digital item, it, you know, a code or in the academic world, which I run around in, it's just the concept of any sort of thing that you can produce and put onto the web that is modifiable. It is openly free to access, right? So you can take a file for some kind of program. You can go into the code and you can make whatever modifications you want. For video gamers, you know, companies will put out the code for certain games. That way you can mod the games yourself. And in 3D printed gun world, an open source gun is a gun that you can get the designs for and the plans for and make your own modifications to it. Yeah, you can mod it, you can share it, yeah. do whatever you want. And, and within the 3D printed gun community, that's really popular. A lot of the guns were built this way. There was kind of a collaborative effort by multiple people within the community to test out these designs, say, I think hey, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. This one explodes, got to fix it. This one it. exploded, my hand is missing, et cetera, et cetera. But really, like, why stop at guns? Like, what if you could share the blueprints to all kinds of weapons that could be 3D printed or milled or even just, just sending out the blueprints for weapons you could you could assemble from freely available consumer goods. Yeah. Well, why not do that, Evan? Isn't that a great idea? That's a great idea, David. I, you know what? I think that only the most egalitarian group of people would do something like that. <laughs> <laughs> who are the who are what is this bastion of freedom? <laughs> who, who could be doing such a thing? Well, the best example uh, today of who is doing this is the Islamic State. So yes, we're finally uh, going to talk about ISIS. The Amir al-Mu'minin, that's the guy who's doing it. ISIS uses effectively the exact same methods we've been talking about through this entire episode, and they've used it to create an entire arsenal that has been actually very successful in fighting off actual militaries. They've been doing it for years. Yeah. Because the thing about ISIS is that even when supply lines are cut, they were astonishingly still able to arm themselves in ways that nobody understood. And, you know, a lot of ISIS's hardware is scavenged from the various militaries that have occupied the region at one point or another. We've got Iranian weapons, we've got American weapons, we've got Iraqi weapons, we've got Syrian weapons, Turkish weapons, Kurdish weapons. Right. But beyond that, they were able to build their own weapons that kept them from being overwhelmed. Uh, this is because they have mastered, in a way, the open source weapon it was more of an internal effort, but they were able to share blueprints to people across the Islamic State for weapons designed specifically 
to be easy for anyone to manufacture out of easily accessible materials. Obviously, there's some level of know-how you need, but just like with a 3D printed gun or something, mm -hmm. it doesn't take that long to figure out how to master these things. They're designed to be easy to master. So everything from bombs to mortars to actually recoilless rocket launchers, they were able to design. Oh, 3D printed bazookas, I told you. Well, they weren't, and they weren't 3D printing these, these things, but uh, drone bombers, chemical weapons, there's all these kind of weapons that yeah. they're able to give the instructions out and figure out how to how to assemble just across the the Islamic State and create sort of a I mean a slightly centralized sort of decentralized manufacturing uh, system. Yeah, for the Islamic State, you've got a state manufacturing that is decentralized in this way because of the potential of open source files and instructions. According to CAR, which stands for Conflict Armament Research, a lot of the material that was used these various weapons were purchased off the Turkish domestic market, like just stuff you could buy at the store. Yeah, non-regulated. Right. And after seeing this, one member of the CAR called it the industrial revolution of terrorism. Uh. Yeah, well, that is like, that's a pretty heavy thing yeah. just to say. So the biggest thing that ISIS did is it wasn't just that their weapons were easy to, to make. They actually created modular weapons. Uh, yeah, that you could focus on making a particular part that was designed to connect with a variety of different weapons yeah. that could be assembled as needed. So specifically this concept of modular weapons, the idea that there is some kind of basic platform for the weapon that you can just append things to, right? Like, what what was they would listen here? Scope. You got a scope. You could put a scope on a pistol, put a scope on a rifle, put a scope on a bazooka. Put a scope on a bomb. Put a scope on a drone, <laughs> on a bomb. Now, the most famous example uh, is actually their detonators, which could be connected to rockets, grenades, bomb vests, all kinds of other explosives that they had. This concept actually is what journalist Robert Evans describes as a plug-and-play arsenal. Fan of the show. I fan of our I show, mean, yeah. As in fan, we're, we're fans. The show, We as the show are fans of Robert Evans, <laughs> is what I meant to say. So your ears uh, may have perked up earlier when, when I said that ISIS was developing drone bombers. I'd like to go into a little bit of detail about that because drones are the future of warfare. And to be honest, they're the present of warfare. Yeah, increasingly. If you think that a 3D printed gun is like a frightening idea, you have seen nothing yet compared to the potential of drone warfare. Imagine a 3D printed drone with a 3D printed gun on its head. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't even need to 3D print the drone because yeah. drones are on the commercial market. They're they're unregulated. Who cares about if you buy a drone? It is astonishingly simple to outfit a boring commercial drone. Like if you ever watch a YouTube video of like, here's my DJI drone. It's I'm getting sweeping shots or time lapses of like the ocean or of my friends skiing. <laughs> now imagine a sweeping time lapse of you blowing up an allied convoy with your bomb drone. <laughs> well, yeah, so you can take these drones, consumer grade drones, and you can outfit them with everything from explosives to flamethrowers. And it's really difficult to fight against a drone. It is harder to fight against a drone because drones are tiny, they are fast, so to the point where they're practically invisible, and they can be anywhere. Yeah. And usually they're pretty quiet. I mean, they have that whirring sound if they get close, but at that, but by the point that you can hear it, it's probably too late. Yeah. When you sort of outfit these things with, you know, even very basic IEDs, I mean, that was the whole concern of like, 
the experience of being in Iraq, which is like there are just bombs planted all over the place to blow up American soldiers in cars and armored vehicles and whatnot. And this idea of what if they were flying and they could hit you <laughs> without you even knowing, like that just adds an entire yeah. new dimension, literally, to that kind of terror. Yeah. So the Department of Defense is equipping soldiers now with devices like the D drone defender and the Flex Force drone buster block oh, three, sweet. <laughs> which are basically these giant cannons that that shoot out some kind of signal jamming ray into in, into uh, the sky. Kids, we're in sci-fi now. This is all sci-fi. This is this is actually the military is currently using this technology right now to fight. They're blowing up robots with sound guns. <laughs> and it's just going to increase this kind of yep. warfare because why wouldn't you use this stuff? They're inexpensive. They're hard to trace. They're extremely effective. A drone can be used to blow up an armored vehicle like a Humvee or even a tank by basically zipping around to the least armored protected parts of them. These vehicles are not designed to fight against something like a drone or protect against a drone. They're designed for a kind of combat that does not have this third dimensionality above your vehicle to defend against, right? So right. If you if you're like driving around in the heat and you've got your your hatch open or something like that, like oh a robot's just gonna fly in there and blow you up. Which literally yeah. does happen where drones can find an opening, fly into something like a tank and detonate an explosive from within. And sometimes the drones are just used as cameras. They're for spying or for spotters for artillery. In our previous episode we did about ISIS, we called that episode in the future, nations will be built online, and that is part of the crypto anarchist goal, is to build digital nations, these bit nations. Could we say ISIS is the first bit nation, you know? I mean, in a lot of ways. It's an inauspicious start. <laughs> I mean, we're already hearing about the idea that, yeah, we've got groups in Myanmar and Finland and ISIS using these tools. I guess the question is, is one, what what would stop a group like ISIS from sharing this information with other people? And two, like, haven't they done that already? Like, is it not obvious that this is something that is just going to increase because this stuff is already out there and lots of different anti-government militia kind of groups are using this material? Yeah, I, I think it's safe to assume at this point that what ISIS has done is going to, at the very least, inspire other groups and probably at worst, like why not share with sympathetic groups? It would seem to me foolish not to take advantage of this technology if I were leading an extremist group yeah, or some kind of militia or something like that. And this kind of goes to something that I don't know if we've talked about it recently, but when it comes to technology, there is this battle between freedom and security. Freedom to and freedom from. Yeah, basically. Yes, that's, that's, a, that's a good way of putting it. Are there benefits to this crypto anarchist upending a lot of the systems of power as we know them? I think there is. And this is something we talked about in our cryptocurrency episode last time, is that cryptocurrency also can do incredible things. It can be used by groups to fight against oppressive governments and also to create stability in unstable economies and things like that. It can give power back into the hands of people who are denied power. I think a lot of this 3D printing technology also does that in situations where you have an oppressive government or something like that. I think there is something to this idea of deterrence dispense, like that that concept. At the same time, it comes with 
a lot of dangerous, violent consequences that part of, again, why this episode was so challenging for me personally. Like Cody Wilson said, this is an inherently political question. It demands you to kind of have an opinion on it. And I don't know exactly where my opinion falls on this topic. It's very Pandora's box, right? You feel ambivalent about it because it is, on the one hand, it's like, here is something beneficial that's come out of it, but also it's released all the monsters and terrible things in the world out of it. I forget if we had mentioned Four Futures uh, in like a very early episode. I think think we've mentioned that book many times. Dave and I are both big fans of Peter Fraze's Four Futures. One of the futures is is rentism, the idea that you're in a post-scarcity society, but we need to create scarcity just to keep capitalism working. And we're talking about like how crypto on the internet with like NFTs and things like that is basically rentism to a certain extent. Yeah. A poorly operating and really, I don't think going to go very far kind of rentism, at least not in the form it's in. I think the nice thing about this 3D printed gun top and uh, open source product world is a nice remedy to that in a certain way, right? You're saying, all right, well, yeah, you're going to say that certain people own the patents to this design. Well, I don't know. We're just going to steal it and put it on the end and people just print it regardless. I think there's that's the benefit there. But I think it's really telling that the way that people are starting to do this in one regard is it's being used to make weapons of death, you know? <laughs> it's like, yeah, some people are making like Warhammer miniatures with it, but some people are making guns to blow up people, you know? So it's, yeah, I definitely feel ambivalent about it for sure. And it's funny you mentioned there, there's also a line from the Crypto Anarchist Manifesto. Combined with emerging information markets, crypto anarchy will create a liquid market for any and all material, which can be put into words and pictures which will dismantle the barbed wire around intellectual property. Yeah. Like this sounds like a communist kind of language in a certain way, which is very interesting. I mean, there's so much to unpack with all of this stuff. I don't even know what to think about a lot of this. And we had mentioned that it's it's intentionally parodying or at least taking a lifting language from like traditional communist manifesto, right? With, right. Especially with that opening line. Well, the very libertarian kind of twist to it, which well, I, think, I think you find a lot more overlap between those groups than yeah. you would expect. To kind of wrap us up at this this one moment here, you know, we mentioned that Jay Stark, the creator of the FGC9, died earlier this month. I don't know if you know, Evan, do you know how he died? No, I'm not sure. Well, I'll tell you how he died. Mm. I'll tell you the story of how he died. Shot with his own guns. <laughs> uh, no, there was a police raid on his home, and then he had a heart attack. <laughs> That's the official story. I mean, I if if police ran into my apartment, I'm sure it would also be a shock to me. It just feels like, yeah, okay. I am very suspicious of that story. Uh, so going into the bumper, Evan, I got one more uh, special surprise for you. Let's do this. Is that you know that Ghost Boy has got a tribute to Jay Stark. <laughs> a tribute to Jay Stark. Let's do it. Yeah. See you on your side. Rest in peace, you did it. We grow stronger every minute. Feel this free spirit in that FGC night when it's printed. It takes a village. They can try to silence us and pillage. Jay Stark left an imprint. What you started, we will finish. You can't cut this off. There's way too many heads on the Hydra. His legacy lives on. These goons can't put out the fire. Was a peaceful man, but still they tried to make him a pariah. The mission self-defense. We give the tools that you require. No matter if you win the mansion near the trailer park he did this shit for you to start a movement takes a spark with deterrence dispensed ain't no dividing and conquer the more you try to stop the signal the more it gets stronger
What'd you think? Yeah. Uh, it's very touching for a dead man to be celebrated for something he, uh, he died for, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 like a martyr. It is. Like, he he, he became a martyr. I mean, he was already a very influential figure in, in this group. But the passion of Jay Stark. Yeah, there's something, like, messianic. Yeah. It's just really fascinating to me. Yeah, you know, I think the more that we do this show, I feel like even in those few years, the more convinced of how, by the end of my life, the core of what it means to, like, be living in human civilization will look very different and i'm both terrified and excited about that you've seen the photos of these guns right yeah they're made with like the 3d printer plastic but they're like they're like candy guns or like rainbow guns i <laughs> i'm sure that throughout the whole episode you're thinking about these 3d printed guns they look virtually identical to like professional regular guns you would see black have like camouflage on them, yeah. No, you can use whatever colors you want. Most of these guns are like neon pink, orange and lime Bright green. yellow. Just like yeah. extremely gaudy. I think if you saw somebody on the street actually using one of these guns, more often than not, you'd think it was like a Nerf gun. It'd be like a toy, yeah. Yeah, they look, they look more like toy guns than a lot of actual toy guns do, which is yeah. like hilarious to me. <laughs> toy guns are trying to replicate a certain reality or realism, whereas the 3D printed guns it is real, so you don't have to do that. Oh, it's like, if you have the option, why not like express yourself this way really go all out with customizing it. I feel like this is just one more way that the future is going to be completely absurd. Yeah. And one more like weird bit of trivia is back at the beginning, the Liberator pistol. The gun that exploded and- Yeah, yeah. <laughs> blow your hands off. The name, the Liberator, do you know where that comes from, Evan? I assume it's from Liberty, man, 1776 and what all. That's what I always assume too. It turns out there's an actual like a historical reference in there from World War II. Well, I mean, 1776 was a historical date, David. <laughs> it, it happened and, and Liberty happened then. So that's historical. <laughs> it's true. Okay, I'm sorry. Once again, <laughs> Evan schools me on history. <laughs> Taking all the school. 1776 happened. Uh, no, in World War II, Project Liberator or something oh. like that. Do you know this? Do you know about I this? I actually think I, it's the little pistols, right? It's yeah. the, the like one-shot assassination pistols. The uh, allies would airdrop in, yeah, these little one-shot pistols into, I believe, Germany-occupied France. Yeah. And the idea was that the Germans would have no idea who was and was not armed. And therefore, because anybody could be armed, they would start behaving as if everybody was armed and that would give the resistance populace basically a lot more freedom uh, from tyranny. Yeah. I don't know if in practice that actually worked. Think about the Liberator. I That is a very funny name and it's a little tongue in cheek as far as I can tell because if it's a one one shot gun, the Liberator, because it explodes after you use it once, is also a one-shot gun. Well, it was a one-shot gun regardless, yeah. because like you could really only put a bullet in it. Was it like, I'm trying to remember if it's like breech loading or something? Let me see. Liber, how to load Liberator pistol. Oh no, I'm sorry. How to load the bad Liberator pistol. <laughs> the bad one, the explodey one. I love in this video, they are firing the Liberator to test it. And they have like these twines set up around it yeah. so they can stand way far behind it when they, when they set it off. They're like, I'm not holding this thing. It's like set up in a vice so that they don't have to hold it. So it's basically like a- Oh, like this a thing ex exploded. <laughs> you, are you watching this video? No. It totally explodes the moment you shoot it. Yeah. Yeah. There it goes. Yeah. <laughs> 
so it's basically like a like a musket, like a like a pre-modern gun, and you just drop the little bullet down there. Then it would fire, and immediately you'd like shoot your hand off or something like that. Yeah, I mean the thing's extremely unsafe. Yeah, for sure. But like like we said before, that's kind of like not even the point. Right. The point is just look, we made we technically made a three D printed gun. Go and do likewise, and like you you will do greater things than this. Proof yes. of concept. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that uh, basically does it for uh, our episode today. Thanks for joining us. We're so excited to be here. Evan, why don't you take us out? Yeah, I'll take us out with a little bit of trivia. Uh, (laughs) A a piece of trivia that I thought of. Gang, did you all know that the first first places we see blown glass was in ancient Rome? (laughs) That's a bit of trivia for you. I think you're gonna give me trivia about the guns. I don't know any gun trivia. Uh, I think the first gun was for fireworks in China, in like ancient China. So there you go. I don't know if that's true. That's literally just some pop it's a culture. Great fact. <laughs> that's, that's not even trivia because I can't verify. Or I could verify. It's not even I trivia because you made it up. I made it up. <laughs> you can't fact check the Internet Explorer. That's right. We we make the facts. All right. Well. For all of you at home, I've been your host, David Ryan Anderson. And I am Evan Axel Anderson. Go be the internet you want to see in the world. Hey everyone, it's David, back on a normal microphone. This episode is over, but as always, it's time for credits. This episode, we heard excerpts from The Signal and Live Free or Die by libertarian rapper Ghost Boy. I actually do suggest checking out the full songs on Spotify, because I think they're pretty fascinating cultural artifacts. Right now, we're listening to Punk by Out of Flux, and as always, I'd like to say thanks to Something Unreal for his Windows XP remix that we hear at the top of every episode. Thanks for hanging out with us. (laughs) 